keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. History is one of those things we're supposed to learn in school. Knowledge of history makes us free. And America has always, oh, for a couple hundred years anyway, believed in history, in in education. Uh, It's been really important to us. What is happening to education in America? In the optimistic late 60s, many of us figured that 21st century education would not only be a high national priority, but would also reach every student with quality public schools, bringing out the best in each student's creativity, and that would be a real focus of our national policy. I imagined a future in which public education was seen as America's most valuable asset. Now, the reality seems to be public education on the ropes, attacked from forces on the right, not even as good as it was 50 years ago, which is amazing. Instead of a better education for all, there is what our guest today calls a rising tide of inequality. Rising tide of inequality. We've had a lot of that for a long time, but to think about a rising tide of inequality, whoa. On earlier shows, we've looked at the overall highly ineffective charter schools and often downright destructive school movements, reform movements, which have, instead of helping education, generally weakened it. Those of us who have kids in school share a frustration with our kids' teachers who find themselves boxed in teaching to tests. It's not a great environment for education for our kids. Our guest today, I'm very pleased, is John Kuhn, whose new book is called Fear and Learning in America, subtitled Bad Data, Good Teachers, and the Attack on Public Education. Kuhn is superintendent of the Perrin-White Consolidated Independent School District in Texas. I'm not going to say that again. And is a vocal advocate for public education at a time where so many powerful forces are attacking it. He's also known as America's superintendent. That's quite a title. John Kuhn, how did you get that title? Well, uh, that uh, I did not give myself that title. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> that title was uh, uh, kind of given to me a little bit tongue-in-cheek by uh, uh, some friends of mine who are active in the Save Our Schools movement. Uh-huh, Save Our Schools movement. Well, what is the Save Our Schools movement? Uh, that is a, kind of a broad-based coalition of people from all over the United States. Uh, it, it formed uh, sort of as a grassroots organization back in 2010 in the midst of uh, just a, a lot of the school reform efforts uh, in all these different states, they have a lot of similarities, a lot of the same uh, people in the background pushing these these uh, policies. And so uh, we had a, actually had a large 
rally in Washington, D.C. in uh, early 2011, uh, summer of 2011. Uh, Matt Damon spoke there. Uh, Diane Ravitch, former assistant U.S. Secretary of Education, spoke there. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the speakers as well. well that That's great. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people really do care about it. It's a tough time, but, uh, oh, it, it's challenging and, uh, of course, builds character. <laughs> We have enough characters. You you wrote you got some fame for something called the New Alamo Letter back in 2011. Tell us about that. What a great title, the New Alamo Letter. Well, uh, first of all, let me go back to some things you said at the very beginning uh, here of the broadcast, Bert. I think you were right on target uh, at the very beginning. You talked about uh, kind of our goals for education uh, in in this country, and it, it goes all the way back to our state constitutions. When you read them, uh, they talk about uh, the necessity of our uh, kids being educated so that they can. Uh, self-govern and 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 hold on to liberty and not right. not be uh, uh, you know uh, dominated by tyranny. So I think you touched on that at the very beginning, and you know that's one of the high hopes I have for education, not only as an educator but as a father as well. Um, so the the new Alamo letter came about uh, in February of 2011. I was a first year superintendent here in the state of Texas. I had been a Spanish teacher and English as a second language teacher, an assistant principal and a principal. And uh, the, the, the growth and centrality of standardized testing in what we do in schools uh, was a, uh, a kind of a burr under my saddle, if I can use a Texas saying, uh, oh, yeah. for a long time. And not just me, but a lot of my colleagues as well. We kind of quietly would grumble amongst ourselves about what was happening to education and uh, how so much of it was be- being driven by these one or two subjects that were tested and what was on the test. and. Uh, so you know, I, I just I just kind of lived with it and did the best I could and muddled through as an, as a teacher and administrator. But in 2010, uh, the state legislature in Texas met, and this was in the midst of the uh, kind of the Tea Party uh, revival. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, during the during the early days of the session, uh, we started getting word from Austin that we were looking at severe uh, cuts to the public education budget in Texas. And and by severe, uh, the first numbers that came out of Austin. Were, uh, was $10 billion worth of cuts to the schools in the state. Wow. So we started getting uh, spreadsheets showing us how that was going to affect us locally, and uh, a lot of us went into panic mode as superintendents. I had a staff of 64, and uh, I was looking at a $300,000 cut to my budget, which would have been a significant number of, of my, my staff. Um, anyway, during that time, uh, with that kind of hanging over our heads, I went to a meeting with other school uh, administrators, and a state senator spoke, and as she spoke, she talked about the need for shared sacrifice and how the state did not mm-hmm. have any money, and uh, we were just all going to have to make some sacrifices. But then she pivoted, and she started talking about this new testing program that, that she had championed, and uh, we were going from five standardized tests required for high school students to graduate to 15. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were going to require uh, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors each year to pass five end-of-course exams in order to qualify for graduation. So this was the most draconian standardized testing protocol in the nation. And it was expensive. It, it was a contract with uh, Pearson, which is a test, a test maker, that was worth $468 million, almost half a billion dollars for a five-year contract. And so at this, uh, at this meeting, at, at the end of her remarks, she took questions, and I just I stood up and I, I identified my concern. I said, you know, I'm looking at, at cutting you know, uh, 10, 10 plus percent of my staff in order to, you know, deal with these cuts to education budget. And in her speech, she had said, she had said the testing program was non-negotiable. 
That's, mm. That one mm. word is really what caused me to write the Alamo letter. When ah, she said that well. the test was non-negotiable, but my teachers were definitely negotiable, ah. I got very upset. Uh, so I asked her that, and I, and, I, and I told her, you're saving the test, but not the teacher's. And from my perspective as an administrator, teachers make a bigger difference in children's lives than tests do. Hmm. Um, that evening, her, her response was uh, pretty dismissive. And so I wrote, I wrote the, uh, the new Alamo letter. It's modeled on the letter that came from the actual Alamo, which, of course, is uh, uh, very sacred in Texas history. And, yes. and in that letter, uh, the commander of the Alamo asked for help. He, he, in fact, he begged and pleaded for help, which did not come. And the Alamo fell, as, as you know. Um, but I, I modeled my letter on that same letter, and I just said, you know, to my legislators, it was a direct letter to my, my representatives that represented my area. I said, public education, we need help. We're surrounded. We're, we're under bombardment, uh, underfunding, uh, ridiculous uh, testing requirements and bureaucracy. We need someone to come help us. And sadly, uh, just like the original Alamo, help did not come in 2010 in Texas either. We are talking with John Kuhn about uh, his his new book, Fear and Learning in America. And again, subtitled, Bad Data, Good Teachers, and the Attack on Public Education. There's There's been a lot written about what's happening in public education. And, uh, you know, it hasn't been a good trend lately. What, what was your main purpose in, in writing this book at this particular time? Well, I, I wanted to put the, uh, the current environment, uh, which, which is based on fear and, and threats and dangers in the context of past events in American history that, that were also built on uh, sort of a sense of foreboding. And, and what I found in, in looking at different events that, that have happened in American history, from the Salem witch trials to yeah. the, the Japanese scare uh, during World War II when, when Japanese Americans were rounded up and, and put in camps, uh, what I found is that America has, has been at its best when it has responded to uh, concrete uh, dangers, real dangers, but when uh, the American government has, has tried to uh, uh, foresee dangers or presume dangers, uh, most of the time the actions that followed uh, were really wrong-headed and destructive. And I think, that's, I think the dangers that are, that are stated in terms of education right now, a lot of times they're really over the top and they're really exaggerated. For example, in 2012, Condoleezza Rice and Joel Klein uh, put out a report, and in it they said uh, America's physical security is at risk because of uh, school teachers. Uh, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing, but that was the, the point of their report. And the the, fr- the phrase "physical security" was in that uh, the, the idea that our teachers are so bad that our nation is is physically in danger uh, was just. Uh, just over the top, and so there's this sense of hyperbole <laughs> when we talk about education that, that, to me, betrays that this is not a legitimate movement. It's, it's a sales pitch. Uh, it's, a, it's an appeal to fear to get something done. Oh, we've seen how powerful fear can be. Franklin Roosevelt, of course, said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He knew what he was talking about. Fear has been manipulated so often, and I, you know, a lot of this goes back, let's face it, to Ronald Reagan. In 1983, there was that uh, report, A Nation at Risk. Uh, this came out of Reagan's National Commission on Excellence in Education, and it was a, it was a big event there. Uh, t- t- this report is, is 30 years old, and, and yet it still holds sway. Does this... How much did this report kick off decades of public school bashing? And what you're saying about hyperbole there from, you know, a nation 
at risk, you know, uh, physical security. That's just you couldn't make that stuff up. That's just too crazy. But and that report is uh, where I kind of pinpoint the beginning of this modern era of uh, yeah. education reform, and not just me, but a lot of other oh, sure. uh, folks who who write about and talk about uh, public education reform. That's that's kind of the 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 moment uh, that got the ball rolling. It uh, the report itself severely overstated the the danger. Uh, it committed uh, statistical contortions. Uh, one of the things that the report did. It noted that uh, American students' SAT scores had stagnated, and that was true, but what it failed to mention and what the authors of the report knew but chose not to acknowledge was the fact that the numbers of students taking the SAT test during those years had increased dramatically as more students, more minority students, more female students, more students overall were on the path to go to college. Uh, so basically the stagnating SAT scores that the nation at risk decried, that was actually a positive uh, data point showing that we were opening the doors to higher education to more students. Yes, their standard, their SAT scores were lower than the previous group of students, which was a more exclusivized sample of students, but that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because we're opening the doors of American opportunity to more kids. But it was spun as bad news, and not just bad news, but absolutely panic-inducing devastating news and as a response the ripple effect of that we're still feeling it today some people are calling it the excellence movement that was spurred by a nation at risk but in reality it's it's been a series of hysterical responses that are kind of unhinged from the reality that that schools are are living well my father had many good things to say in his life and and he often said uh, figures don't lie but liars figure the way they twisted things around there, that, that's amazing. And the, and the power of those tests, those standardized tests, it seems like the controversy is very, very much with us now. And uh, in uh, New York Times of uh, August or April 10th, rather, 2014, one of the two uh, op-eds says, uh, we don't want to become cynics. And this is by uh, Elizabeth Phillips. We don't want to become cynics, but until these flawed exams are released to the public and there is true transparency which is obviously not the case, it'll be difficult for teachers and principals to maintain the optimism that is such an essential element of educating children. I wonder if you could speak to that. You know, since I became an advocate or, or an activist, which I never really intended to be, I just <laughs> right. wanted to quietly go about my career as and an teach, educator, sure. and, yeah. uh, but I felt like uh, someone had to speak up about the abuses of uh, over-testing and an over-emphasis on tests. So, I've had conversations over the past four years with you know tons of people on both sides of this issue, and when I get into debates with folks who defend the testing regime, a lot of them are very well-meaning folks. They think you know that if it weren't for standardized tests, how would we know how our children are doing? Um, but one of the things they have trouble understanding from the perspective of practicing school teachers who are in the schools, right. and and I would say the the sense that there is too much testing and testing is too central and, and too much of an emphasis is almost a universal feeling among public school teachers, at least in the part of the world that I live in, but also in, in New York as you watch the news. And not only do teachers feel that way, but uh, lots and lots of parents feel that way too. And so sometimes proponents of the standardized testing regime will uh, they'll lift up this straw man and they'll say, oh, you're anti-testing. 
Well, of course, we teachers are not anti-testing. We've, <laughs> we've been giving tests for years and years and years. We believe in tests, but we believe that there are sensible rules for using tests. And what has happened and what uh, Elizabeth Phillips in the New York Times has recognized, uh, because also, you know, she, she is an educator, I believe she's a principal, is that the, the use of the tests is inappropriate. And who better than educators to carry that message to the world to say, okay, everybody, pay attention. Uh, what you have been told is a good thing is being used in an improper way. Um, the, the fact of the matter is the test vendors are unreliable partners in what we're trying to accomplish. What we said we were trying to accomplish at the outset with education reform was to improve education for our children. But we've absolutely not done that. We've done quite the opposite. We have uh, uh, sucked creativity out of the classroom. We have, you, you spoke about learning uh, civics at yeah, the beginning of sure. the broadcast. Uh, we have cast that to the side, and we have decided our children are going to learn to read and write, and they're going to learn math. And that's pretty much all we're going to test. And, of course, that's what No Child Left Behind right. mandated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the test vendors are unreliable partners, and sadly, at this point, state government is is an unreliable policeman, um, there is no one policing the quality of the tests. Hmm. There's no independent party verifying that the tests are of a proper quality, and there are no limits on how many days that students should spend taking these tests. That's actually, actually there have been laws recently passed to try and scale back on the, the number of days invested in testing, but every day that's spent testing is a day that's not spent learning. And a, a test here and there, absolutely, you sure. know, that's okay. But what we're doing right now is far beyond that. And it just seems to me uh, kind of symbolic of, of many other things that are going on in these currently United States that uh, teaching to test, here's this, frankly, for-profit industry, the testing industry. Uh, are they serving public education? It seems like public education is now serving them, and that's like upside down, it seems to me. And, and I think that's the reality. Um, the test uh, vendors, if you had bought stock in them <laughs> back before No Child Left Behind was passed, you would have done very, very well. Um, the former commissioner of education in the state of Texas is an interesting story. His name's Robert Scott, and he was the commissioner during most of my career. Um, but in 2011, 2012, at that time, he, he, was, he was a party to much of the growth of testing in Texas. And, and then towards the end of his tenure, he changed his mind. And he, uh, he, he made some very frank remarks to the State Board of Education here. And one of the things he said is that it, it's become uh, like a military-industrial complex, but yeah. it's a testing complex. And that is an unfortunate side effect of the policies that, that we've adopted. Uh, I think some of the elected leaders who got us into this didn't see it coming. But I think a lot of the lobbyists and, and on the test vendor mm-hmm. side, I think this is what they wanted to create. And so uh, they'll fight to defend what, what they have right now because it's great for business. And then people like me will fight against it because it's bad for education. Education. Yeah, what a, what a concept. And, you know, it does seem that uh, legislators at the state level, at the federal level, often take the easy way out. It's so simple to say bad test scores do this, make the test scores better, you know, and part of the title of your book is Bad Data, uh, you know, is an example of bad data when school administrators sometimes fire teachers and give others merit pay based on part 
on something called value-added measures. What what are these? Are they effective at judging teacher quality? Oh, absolutely not. And uh, actually, the American Statistics Association yesterday or day before uh, came out with a position paper on value-added measures, and uh, their statement basically repudiated the use of value-added measures for evaluating, you know, individual personnel. Uh, and that's exactly, when I talk about bad data, that is kind of the poster child of bad data. Uh, VAMs are being used recklessly, value-added measures being used recklessly all over the nation uh, to evaluate teachers, but they're unreliable. Uh, just to try and sum up in a nutshell what a value-added measure is supposed to do, it is supposed to isolate uh, the amount of value that a, an individual teacher adds to a child during the year that child is in class. It, it, it attempts to control for outside influences and uh, previous learning or previous lack of learning because teachers, when they get students in their classroom, they come in at all different levels. Uh, so judging a teacher based on a student's absolute test score is, is inappropriate because they can't control what level the students are when they come into the class. So what VAMs say they do or what, what VAM researchers say they're trying to accomplish is uh, to zero in on how much gain, learning gain, these students made while they were in that teacher's class. Uh, the way they do that is an algorithm uh, predicts how much gain the student would make under the average teacher. And so if, if the student's in your class and the, the amount of learning gain attributed to that student while they're in your class is more than what the algorithm said they should have made, then you're a good teacher. And if it's less, then you're a bad teacher. Um, the fact of the matter is the reliability of these, uh, these formulas is very, very suspect uh, to the point that uh, studies have shown uh, there's a Dr. Hairtel um, at Stanford, uh, Edward Hairtel, H-A-E-R-T-E-L, um, who has done studies uh, falsifying these, these mechanisms. He, one of the things he did was he used one value-added measure uh, with a group of teachers and, and students, and he turned around and used another uh, algorithm, a different value-added measure with the same students and the same teachers, and the ratings of these teachers were drastically different. Um, so one of the things you find with value-added measures, if a value-added measure says you're in the 50th percentile of teachers in New York City, the reliability is, is so bad that that could really mean you're in the 20th percentile or you're in the 80th percentile. Yeah. There's a 30 percentile gap of, of what it really could mean. <laughs> well, that's not good enough for uh, data, for polling, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very unreliable. And, but there is such pressure to use that uh, because we don't that's trust easy. teachers to teach. Right. We don't trust administrators to evaluate their teachers. So who have we chosen to trust? the test vendors, and statisticians. And unfortunately, they're not doing a very good job. Well, they're, they're making money, though, so hey, I guess that's their bottom line. <laughs> well, and, and it, it goes beyond money as well. There's an ideology at play, yes, and, and there is, a there's point. a fundamental ideology animating many, not all, but many education reformers, and that is that the public sector can't do things right and the private sector can do those things better. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that ties back into your comment just now about about money. If, if we close a public school and we open a, a private school or a privately managed charter school, uh, then then we're driving money out of the, the public sector and into the private sector. Wow. Again, we're talking with John Kuhn. His new book is called Fear and Learning in America, 
bad data, good teachers, and the attack on public education. Now, the right that uh, seems to have a hold on power still, and they like, you know, a lot of these answers are not real answers. They're just an easy answer. You know, people can be lazy. People in government can be lazy and just, oh, turn it over to the experts, the people in the business. But the right often cites teachers' unions as part of the problem, protecting the job security of mediocre teachers. And a lot of people seem to buy in that. What's your comments on that? Well, I'm I'm in a, uh, a right-to-work state, they call it. I'm in a state where oh, yeah, uh, teachers, they belong to associations. Um, the associations do not have the right to bargain. The associations do not have the right to strike. Um, and it's interesting to me, that comment. So I, I don't spend a lot of time uh, defending unions because I'm, I'm not in a union state. Mm-hmm. Um, but the statement needs to be verified, right? I mean, you can't just say that something's bad. You have to prove it. So if unions are so bad, you would think as you look at the uh, national map of the United States, then those states that have teachers' unions would have the poorest results on these standardized tests, and uh, the the states that have no unions or, or very uh, you know powerless unions like we have here in Texas uh, would would do extremely well if if that statement was based on, you know, evidence. The reality is kind of the opposite. When you look across the South at states where, where unions are, are toothless and, and you look at Massachusetts, for example, right. Connecticut, right. Uh, you see that the states, uh, Massachusetts is uh, con- considered by many to be the strongest state academically in the United States. If you look on an international scale as well, uh, among the top performing nations in the world on the PISA exam, uh, you find you find nations that that have 100% unionized teaching core. So I think that's probably more based on ideology than than any sort of evidence. Yeah, evidence. That's that's you know a good thing rather than just saying something. Actually, have evidence. That's one of the things that I believe public education is supposed to teach us. That uh, teach the kids that when you say something, back it up. And uh, that's that's important to do. I I just can't imagine what it's like for for teachers across the country right now when they're they're just being so hamstrung and boxed in by by this teaching. And they need to to have enthusiasm for teaching. How, what's your sense of the enthusiasm and the optimism that that teachers have right now? Well, I, I'll tell you what you've hit on there is the exact reason I wrote the book. I take all this very personally, uh, and uh, I started speaking out because I took it personally. I've I've been a teacher my entire adult life. I've got three sisters. All three of them are teachers. My best friend is a teacher, and my wife is a teacher. Um, and they're not bad people, and they're not uh, <laughs> ineffective at their jobs. They uh, are professional. They take their job seriously, probably more serious, more seriously than a lot of people in other professions, because they're dealing with the children of their neighbors on a daily basis. And they understand, and I always understood when I was a classroom teacher, what the stakes are. Now, you talk about high-stakes testing, that's not high stakes. What's high stakes is getting to know families and knowing that whether or not their child is prepared for life after high school is up to you. That's high stakes. And so uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the kind of disrespect and, yes, and uh, yes. the assumption of... Uh, malignancy <laughs> among teachers is is really troubling to a lot of us. Uh, teachers that I've met, and I've met a lot of teachers since I started speaking up. I've, I've been to Missouri. I've been to Washington, D.C. I've been to all kinds of teacher uh, get-togethers, and I've, I've met folks, and I've worked with them my whole life. I've worked in three different school districts and have, have you know, become 
personal friends with hundreds of teachers. Um, and just like any industry, there are, there are good ones, there are great ones, there are poor ones. But taken as a whole, these are honorable and decent patriotic Americans who care about their country, who invest themselves in the future of this country. They invest themselves uh, authentically in their communities. They're, they're, so many of them are so active in so many ways. I tell an anecdote in the book uh, after the, the first time I it kind of dawned on me that, that teachers were being portrayed as, as bad Americans um, uh, several years ago. I was a principal when, when, that, when I saw this episode of uh, 2020 that was called Stupid in America, and it was all about bad teachers, and it was, uh, it was very unfair because uh, these anecdotes were lifted up. But there were, you know, and I, can, I can lift up an anecdote showing the opposite point of view just as easily, but those anecdotes were left out, so it was like confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And I had watched that, and so as a principal the next year when we had our back-to-school night, I had all my teachers join me up on the stage. And so our parents, I was a high school principal, our parents were sitting out in the, the auditorium seats, had all my teachers on the stage, and I just asked them a few simple questions. I asked them, uh, how many of you are Sunday school teachers? Several of my teachers raised their hand. I said, how many of you volunteer to run elections? How many of you volunteer to lead a scout troop? How many of you are military veterans? How many of you are volunteer firefighters? And I went down this list of, you know, civic commitments that people do for, for, because they care about their country, oftentimes for no pay. How many of you volunteered at, a, at a, a food pantry, you know, clothes closet? And my teachers, you know, raised their hands. You know, several teachers on every one of those things raised their hands, and the parents clapped for them. And I, I remember looking around, seeing those teachers' faces just beaming mm. because they had not had praise. They had not had anyone say, I appreciate what you do with your life. And so I felt like, you know, somebody needs to say that, so I'm going to say it. Good for you. And, you know, I, I know a lot of teachers myself, and, and virtually every single one, they'll pay out of their own pocket to bring materials into school. They're really dedicated. They, you know, they're not in it for the money. They're in it because they're dedicated to it. And they're dedicated to something that, that the founders of our country, as you mentioned, recognize that in order to be citizens, you have to participate. You have to be educated. Without an education, you can't have a republic. And sometimes I wonder if some of the people on top, some of the, uh, you know, the, the very, very wealthiest people that are like pulling the strings on, on the Republican Party, I'm showing my political bias here, they don't want education. They're like, they're actually, I, I knew school uh, administrators, school superintendents, who, who actually told me back when No Child Left Behind was still in business, that the the actual intention of No Child Left Behind was to destroy public education and to privatize it. It's just, it amazes me what teachers go through, and they're so dedicated to it. It's, you know, and, and, well, and go ahead. I, I, in the book, I call them workaday patriots without guns or parades. And that's, that's the way I look at teachers. I, you know, they're public servants. Yes. My dad was a firefighter. He, he was a Dallas firefighter for 27 years uh, before he retired. And, and I look at teachers in much the same way that I look at him, as people who sacrifice yes. um, for the good of the community. And do we reimburse them? Do we pay them? Yes, we pay them. We pay them a, a decent wage, and, and, as it should be. Sure. Um, but but I, I, I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that they have been portrayed... Uh, as anything less than what they are. But I will note 
the the people who talk this way are very careful not to say teachers. They always say teachers unions, um, and I think that's a I think that's a calculation. Yeah. I think politically, people understand right. that the vast majority of Americans uh, still appreciate their teachers, and and especially their own child's teacher. Right. They get to know right. uh, you know personally sure. and meet with. The vast majority of people realize these are, these are good folks. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and unions, obviously, poll tested. It's not a word a lot of people like. I actually, when I was in the uh, New Hampshire State Senate, there were uh, uh, kind of right-leaning state senators who wouldn't refer to public schools. They referred to government schools. Did you ever hear that phrase used? Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've read it more and more uh, in, in recent years, and I think that's another poll-tested term. Yes. Um, I think it's... I think it's interesting that someone would say that uh, because it it brings up a kind of a, an image of government agents being <laughs> in your local community, whereas in reality, you know, the va- not the vast majority, but many many teachers who come back and teach in a small community school like mine, well, they grew up here. You know, I'm I'm one of them. I graduated from the school I'm the superintendent of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm technically yes uh, a, a a public school is an agent of the government, but in reality, it's an agent of the community. It, it is a part of the community, and so I think that's that's rhetoric to try and drive a wedge between the community and the school, and, and there are purposes for that. You mentioned No Child Left Behind, right. and uh, that sort of feeling that, that many educators have speculated on that it was uh, initially passed in order to kind of blow up the public education system. And it's it's hard not to think that way when you when you realize that the law, as it was originally written, stipulated that 100% of American students uh, would have to be proficient in math and reading by 2014. That means in my school, in your school, in every school across the land, not one child could fail their standardized test of reading and math. And that is unique in the history of education in the world. No country has ever set that goal. Uh, no country has ever even entertained setting such a goal because it's not a realistic goal. Now, when you talk like that, uh, the people on the other side will say, oh, you just don't believe in our kids. You don't believe they can do it. Uh, but the reality is having 100% of any country's pupils, even take the, the countries everyone brags about, Finland and Singapore, uh, they don't get 100% of their children to be proficient. So when you set an impossible goal and then you tie consequences to failure to achieve that right. impossible goal, how can you conclude anything other than an act of deliberate sabotage? Mm, mm, mm. You write about uh, how the media sometimes focuses on amazing teachers, just phenomenal teachers. Is too much pressure being placed on teachers to perform miracles. We've seen this, you know, on TV, these incredible teachers that just do these actual, uh, you know, miracle kind of things. Now, certainly we don't want mediocrity in teachers. How does this affect good quality teachers who are not superstars? You know, I think there's been a shift. Um, I think when I was a kid, uh, you had movies like Stand and Deliver that would come out and they would portray a teacher just doing a just doing an amazing job. And in those days, that was an inspiring thing. Uh, when you would read about or hear about teachers like that, I think everyone uh, that was a teacher would feel a lot of pride and say, you know, that is, that's the promise of what we do, and that's what we're all aiming for. We all want to be like that. 
I think today, when you hear stories of these super teachers or these uh, miracle teachers, uh, the intent is different and the storyline is quite a bit different. Um, now, instead of those people being lifted up as inspirations, they're, they're almost lifted up as recriminations. Uh, hmm. Then why don't you all do what this one uh. particular person has done? The other thing that strikes me when we talk about uh, the demands for miracles among educators is that there are no similar demands for miracles among politicians and uh, people who decide education funding decisions, uh, our communities, whether they support or don't support education. Um, there's, there's this breakdown in the notions of equity when you talk about education. Mm. Uh, people who support a lot of education reforms, they want equitable outcomes, but at the same time they're totally uh, accepting of inequitable inputs. And so I hold to an expansive definition of equity. And what, what that means is, whereas a lot of education reformers will say, you know, if we make sure every kid has an equal quality teacher and every kid has an equal quality curriculum, then everything will be fine. I, I don't agree with that. I think that's patently false because it supposes that there's nothing else influencing the child's education other than the teacher and the curriculum. In the real world where I live, there are a whole lot of other factors that determine whether or not that teacher and that curriculum can have an impact. Um, Benjamin Maslow has a hierarchy of needs, yes, and at the bottom of that hierarchy of needs are, are things like uh, not being hungry, feeling loved and accepted. And so until you scale that pyramid from those, those bases at the bottom to get to the point where a student can actually self-actualize, a student can actually reach for their goals, uh, if, if you ignore those bottom things, the basic needs that we all have, then it doesn't matter how hard you whip the teachers. It doesn't matter how wonderful your curriculum or your standards are. If you're ignoring those basic needs, uh, then you're going to fail. And so a lot of the education reform was designed to fail because it ignored this expansive idea of equity. And when teachers bring that up, we're shouted down and we're shushed because people say, oh, you're just making excuses. Don't bring up poverty. That's just an excuse. Oh my. Well, that's easy for someone to say who's not looking 30 kids in the eye on a daily basis. And <clears throat> this uh, poverty has, has become, childhood poverty has become an epidemic in the United States. Yes. And teachers are being told not to talk about it as though it doesn't matter, as though it doesn't affect the way they do their job. Um, I think that's entirely unjust, but I also think it's counterproductive. I think it's harming kids, uh, taking away the words from teachers to say, hey, we need help, because teachers do need help. Are there miracle teachers? You know, there are teachers who do amazing things, but should we build a policy around the idea that everyone should have to perform miracles? Absolutely not. Mm. Public policy is what's supposed to fix these things, not hoped-for miracles among people earning $30,000 a year. That's a ridiculous approach to education and it's it's so recognized i mean i don't know how people can possibly deny the effects of poverty of being hungry of, of missing out as you say on the essentials the foundation of maslow's hierarchy of need it, it's it's just purposely ignorant they're trying to ignore this reality here another article in uh in the uh, new york times nick christoph whom i don't always agree with uh said one of the most important evidence-backed school reforms is public preschool and home visitation for disadvantaged kids. Yet, Republicans are blocking any national move to universal pre-kindergarten. Uh, 
so come on, Republicans, Nick Kristoff says. You've highlighted enduring truths about the importance of family, jobs, and school reform. But while your diagnoses deserve respectful consideration, your prescriptions have mostly proven wrong. One more thing. These aren't just abstract policies. These are ethical issues touching on our obligations to fellow human beings. I have to say, Nick Kristoff, I think, got it right there. Uh, it sounds like it. Uh, yeah, I think I think he did. Uh, we're uh, we're talking about universal pre-K in Texas right now. We have a governor's race going on, and one of our candidates has uh, proposed that as part of her kind of her uh, education platform. No good. Her opponent has come back and said, uh, before we expand pre-K to a nas- to a statewide level, um, we need to verify the quality of the program. Uh, and so, how do you verify the quality of your Tests, program? Right. Well, you test the kids, <laughs> and you test them at the beginning, and then you turn around and you test them at the end. Oh, and so, he is essentially calling for standardized testing of three and four year olds. Oh my! Uh, ag- oh. Again, can can we not, you know, trust the teacher in that classroom to Jeez. evaluate the student learning? And a friend of mine once he he once told me uh, we were talking about the star test, which is Texas test. He said the star test is the state's way of saying we trust teachers, but not really. <laughs> Uh, uh, text, well, I'm not going to say anything about Texas. Now, we all know uh, that I mean, it, it's clear that schools in wealthier towns often provide better education. The tax base is that much greater. So students' accidents of birth location may help or hinder them. Is, is there any kind of growing political will to address that? I mean, a kid who happens to be born in a poor area, and there's a lot more poverty these days since the middle class has been so decimated, is there any progress on, on recognizing that, well, again, that poverty is part of it and that it does affect education, especially when, you know, so many, uh, not all areas, but, but a lot of uh, uh, public education is based on the local community's tax base? You know that is a that is a difficult knot uh, for our elected leaders to untangle, and I'm talking specifically in Texas. Uh, it was a it was a surprise to me. I think it was 2006 when I discovered that my my high school, where I was high school principal, we were <clears throat> we were tied in in the state's funding mechanism. We were getting uh, four thousand seven hundred forty seven dollars per pupil in what the state calls target revenue Uh and we had a school next to us that was getting uh six thousand plus Mm -hmm. and i didn't i did not realize i assumed and i think your average uh person is going to assume that every school gets about the same amount of dollars per pupil because they're all trying to accomplish the same goal right we all have to get our kids to pass the same test Mm -hmm. so you would think we would all get about the same resources um, in Texas, that's not true. In a lot of states, that's not no, true. No, it's not true well, here. Then the next thing your brain wants to say is, well, if you're unevenly funding education, surely you're funneling more dollars to the areas where kids have high needs. Lots of poverty, lots of hunger, lots of homelessness. Um, kids are behind. Their test scores are low. Maybe those areas are getting extra funding. Well, in reality, because in Texas and other states, school funding is based on property taxes, <clears throat> the opposite is true. Um, this has been an ongoing fight in Texas. There have been now seven state lawsuits mm. about uh, inequitable school funding, and it's uh, it's very frustrating to me personally because the the, the area I live in and have always lived in, uh, generally speaking, is is not a wealthy rural area, um, and so our schools get shortchanged. You're asking me to accomplish the same thing as a wealthy suburban school district, but with fewer resources and with more challenging you know, students, students that face bigger challenges in their lives, 
it's you know kind of on the face of it, it's unjust. I remember oh, yeah. when I learned about it, I had a faculty meeting. I told my teachers, my te- I had a teacher ask me, how come the school next to us pays its teachers more? And I told them they get more money per pupil. And my teachers uh, had a hard time accepting that, and I don't blame them. And here, you know, this show is coming from New Hampshire. We have been dealing with the lack of living up to our constitutional, our state constitution requires that we, quote, cherish, unquote, education for all students of the state of New Hampshire. We have, there have been lawsuit after lawsuit, thousands, untold thousands of hours of legislative time has been put into it, and we just haven't lived up to our constitutional responsibility. And I'm sure it's like that in many, many other states. How, how, where could we get funding for public schools if it's no longer relying on local property value? Suggestions? Well, there have been proposals in, in Texas, and a lot of these proposals have come from rural uh, conservative Republican representatives who are faced with constituents who, who understand that they're getting shortchanged on, on their uh, education of, that their children are getting. Uh, some of the proposals in Texas have included a statewide property tax where all the property tax goes to the state and then the state uh, you know, hands it out evenly. Um, I, I believe that would require a constitutional amendment in Texas. Another proposal in Texas has been a state income tax. That's also unconstitutional in Texas, so that would require a constitutional amendment. Um, there has there have been uh, proposals also to do away with local property taxes and replace replace that with uh, sales tax. That proposal actually is coming from a, a, a current statewide candidate, uh, but it is being assailed pretty vigorously by his opponent uh, because it would require sales taxes to go from eight percent to twenty five percent and. If you imagine buying a car with a 25% uh, sales tax, that's a, that's a pretty big chunk of change. So that particular proposal, probably not realistic. What's most interesting to me as I watch this unfold in Texas is that the legislature doesn't have the guts to fix the problem, and this has been an ongoing thing. Uh, you know, it's political calculus, I guess, if you're a legislator and you, you want to bring home the bacon to your constituents, well – you know, poor rural areas and poor urban areas and poor border areas don't have as as much representation at the state level as your suburban areas. So what our legislators in Texas do over and over again is they punt to the judicial branch and they (laughs) hope and pray that when all the schools get together and sue the state, which we've just done and we're in the midst of right now, that that the judge will force them to do the right thing because they can't bring themselves to do it just out of, you know, morals. <laughs> they, I think politics trumps morals, and so we inequitably fund our schools. But the, the judges are who they're looking for for uh, support. I, I always find it amazing how much energy is expended avoiding doing the obvious right thing. It, it just is incredible. That's the truth. Uh, you write about two Texas towns which could stand in for many other towns in America. What do their median incomes, test scores, and per-student funding tell us about the intersection of individual wealth, the so-called achievement gap, and your run-of-the-mill social injustice? Yeah, they're a, kind of an allegorical story of, of two towns, and they're, they're two actual towns here in Texas. They're not very far apart. Um, but their demographics are quite different. I did change the names of the towns <laughs> in the book. 
uh, just so as not to sure. ruffle any feathers. Uh, but but one of the towns, they, and they both have about the same number of students. I believe each district has around 6,000 students. Um, one of the districts is a very wealthy area, suburban area, um, and the other is a working-class area. The other differences, uh, you know, average house is uh, $900,000 in one of these areas and about $80,000 in the other school district. Um, property value is not even close. Uh, the racial demographics are uh, different. One of the areas is predominantly white. The other area is predominantly minority. Um, when you look at uh, test scores in the schools, uh, the wealthy area has, a, I believe it was 98% of their students meet all standards on the uh, exit level, graduation level tests, um, whereas the other one, uh, the number is significantly lower than that. Um, so having said all that, you know, you ask yourself just a common sense question, not a Republican or, 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 or Democrat question, just a, just a question as a person, which of those two areas needs more school funding? And I think 90-something percent of people, if they were being honest, would say we probably need to funnel extra resources to the working class area where students are struggling on the tests, higher numbers of students living in poverty and everything else. Sure. Um, but then we face what we really do in Texas, and we do the exact opposite. The wealthy area with students who are doing extremely well, it gets, uh, I don't remember exactly the difference, but a 1000 plus dollars per student that the other school district doesn't get. So uh, we give the school district that needs the most help less help. Uh, so it does come down to, to justice. That's an, un, that's an unjust structure in our public policy that we have built. You know, this is not an accident. This didn't accidentally happen. It's, it's not, you know, something that just cropped up and we need to deal with it. We built this. We elected the people who chose to make these policies reality. And now as we look at what we've built, you know, a lot of us scratch our heads and say, how did this happen? Mm. And we have to fix it. We certainly do. And and you talked about how many teachers, What the large percentage of teachers that volunteer and are active in their community in so many other ways. And I wonder about the uh, the for-profit testing industry, how many of their CEOs do the <laughs> same. <laughs> and I, I wonder how much you think we should be uh, concerned, John Kuhn, about that, that Wall Street hedge funders and billionaire CEOs are financing this education reform movement. I, I doubt that they volunteer for their communities very much either. I think that's a very telling thing. Um, I, you know, I've, in the book, I talk about uh, white hat reformers and black hat reformers. I took that from uh, the hacking world. They, there, are, there are black hat hackers and white hat hackers. And, uh, so the white hat school reformers are, are people – a lot of them, college students, young people, who want to make a difference. And so some of those people uh, get involved in education reform uh, because they see inequities, and as far as they can tell, uh, education is the way to uh, fix those inequities. And so they, they get into education reform out of a good faith desire to improve things. Um, but then there are black hat reformers, and these are people who inhabit the education reform movement who have uh, less wholesome, um, <laughs> I guess, purposes for their involvement. And uh, uh, there are lots and lots of shenanigans in uh, some of the education reform sectors that are out there. Um, so uh, a lot of the parts and pieces of the education reform movement, some of them started out as really good ideas, 
that were then sort of hijacked by mm-hmm. other interests mm-hmm. that found them to be a way to uh, to make significant amounts of money. Uh, imagine that. Well, recently in Texas, I always like to end on a hopeful note. Recently in Texas, the legislature passed something called House Bill 5. What was that? And might it be a sign of positive change on the national level as well? House Bill 5 was, if you ask me, a wonderful uh, thing that, that has happened recently in Texas. They they walked away from 15 star tests required to graduate. They they scaled it back to five, um, and they, uh, they passed a law actually that prohibits uh, lobbyists for testing companies from serving on the state committees that design accountability systems. Uh, unbelievably, <laughs> there had never been a prohibition oh against goodness. that. And so uh, some of the testing lobbyists, some of the really well-known, uh, some of the guys who designed No Child Left Behind, actually, were sitting on state committees that designed our assessment and accountability protocols. Well, believe it or not, as they sat on those committees, each and every session we added more testing, more testing, more oh testing, and uh, their uh, clients, the testing companies, grew richer and richer and richer. Uh, so House Bill 5 did a lot of good things, but I want to tell you kind of the genesis of House Bill 5. It's really an amazing story. Um, after the 15 test requirement came online, one of the things the legislature did was they said, we want the kids to take these tests seriously, so each of those tests will count 15% of their final grade. So they basically took final exams away from teachers and said, we're going to let the testing corporations make these, yeah. and uh, the kids are going to have to pass these to graduate. Uh, mothers got very upset when they realized Ooh. that uh, their children's tests, state tests, were suddenly going to begin to impact things like GPA, uh, college uh, uh, graduation ranking, and other things that, uh, in the past, the state test had never affected the kids' uh, uh, GPA or anything like that. Now it did. Uh-huh. So when moms joined the teachers in Texas, uh, the testing uh, brigade kind of tucked tail and ran, and House <laughs> Bill 5 was passed. Mothers are often the most powerful segment that can make real change. I sense that there's some shifts going on obviously in Texas, but across America, the people are, are getting it about education and testing and, you know, the question of whether, uh, you know, democratic education and the for-profit motive work together. It seems like it's, you know, really kind of questionable. The, the book is uh, uh, it's called uh, Fear and Learning in America, subtitled Bad Data, Good Teachers and the Attack on Public Education. Our guest today has been John Kuhn, K-U-H-N. If people uh, are interested, they can get the book. Any other uh, websites to which you can point people? Uh, Amazon.com is the easiest, easiest place to find it. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, let's hope for uh, a better future on, on education. I think uh, talking truth to power oftentimes works, especially if it comes from mothers, huh? Bert, thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it, and I appreciate you uh, allowing me this time with you. Well, thank you so much for the work you do, John Kuhn. I love education. Thanks. Thank you. 